was supposed to be a quick pit stop on the way to the Upper Peninsula. Jane Snow, a 31-year-old mom, was headed back to her hometown when she pulled into the rest area near Gaylord. Her children played outside with a family dog, Poochie, after a quick run to the restroom. Jane Snow would never leave the women's bathroom. Instead, her two young boys would find their mother on the bathroom floor covered in stab wounds. By loved one's account, the boys heard her struggle to breathe her last breath. Nearly 40 years later, Jane Snow's death remains an open case, but a recent development has police and family again asking for help with the decades-old questions, who killed Jane Snow and why? This is Michigan Crime Stories. Michigan Crime Stories is a podcast that explores murder, mysteries, and mayhem in the Mitten State. Criminal behavior has always enthralled us. It's when societies determine what is and isn't allowed. We assume heinous crimes are committed by monsters, individuals we dehumanize in an effort to make sense of their deeds. Their victims sometimes seem distant, just faded names in a passing headline. But the terrifying truth is that crimes are committed by ordinary people just like you and me. And many of those crimes happen right in our own backyard. My name is Darcy Moran. And this is John Counts. We're reporters for MLive.com and your hosts for Michigan Crime Stories. This episode is titled, The Rest Stop Murder. They were just short of halfway to their destination. Give or take about three hours outside of Grand Rapids and about three away from Jane Snow's hometown of Escanaba. It was 1979, and Snow had been raising her two boys, Eric and Mark, in the populous Grand Rapids. She was a few years divorced and a nurse who worked with paraplegics at Mary Freebed Rehabilitation Hospital. Her sister, Mary Baraboo, recalled that Snow liked Grand Rapids, but was worried about escalating crime in her neighborhood. She couldn't afford to move to a safer area in the city, so her parents encouraged her to look north, to home. Baraboo didn't want to be recorded for this podcast, but did agree to comment. She described their hometown, with a population of roughly 14,000 at the time, as lovely, small-town America. They grew up near the sandy beaches of Lake Michigan and went to Catholic school. It was a place where Baraboo said, quote, things like murder just do not happen to a nice, normal, middle-class family. Her parents found a house for Jane Snow to take a look at, and a job. So on May 15, 1979, Snow packed up her car with her two boys, the family dog, and the family cat. She hated to drive at night, news accounts would later say, but it was still light out when Snow pulled into the unattended and empty Loon Lake rest area on I-75, just four miles south of the tiny town of Gaylord in Otsego County. It's believed it was sometime before 7.30. Snow went into the women's restroom, and the boys, one nine and the other about seven or eight, went into the men's. When the boys had finished, they took the dog to a tiny lake at the rest stop, and were said to have just monkeyed around, tossing rocks at frogs. But their mother was taking too long. For what happened next, I spoke to Michigan State Police Detective Sergeant Dave Hart, who's handled the open case for a little over eight years. Uh, It took her a while, so one of the boys went to check on her, and he found her on the bathroom floor in the woman's restroom. 
Uh, she'd been stabbed multiple times, and they attempted to contact someone. They'd been the only one in the rest area, the only group in the rest area. Uh, they attempted to utilize payphone to call for help, but the payphone was out of service, so they waved down traffic on the freeway. Jane Snow was dead. She'd been stabbed 23 times on her chest, back, and on both arms and legs. There were indications her wrist was broken, too. Her purse was undisturbed. Police descended, but one trooper didn't have to go far. He'd made a stop in the area minutes before and seen the only person known to be in the area at that time. The trooper had spotted a hitchhiker, 28-year-old John Magali of Pontiac, about 7.25 p.m., less than half a mile from the rest stop, according to news reports. The trooper picked up Magali and dropped him off at the next exit. Within the days that followed, police picked up Magali again. When they did, he had blood on his shirt. News accounts describe Magali as a drifter who'd assaulted a police officer the year before, but he was also a former Marine, they said. He had the words Mad Dog tattooed on his arm. Magali was wanted for forgery out of Rhode Island, and in the meantime, police ran lab tests and questioned him. Hart said Magali was untruthful about several things and denied being picked up by the trooper until the trooper walked into the interrogation room. Earlier that day, he had a domestic altercation with his wife. Um, he, she had left him on the freeway. They, uh, according to her, he had thrown a beer bottle, smashing it on her windshield, and she left him walking on southbound I-75 from Indian River. And then uh, he hitchhiked to Gaylord and um, started walking on the freeway again, looking for another ride, according to him. So th there were some other things. He'd also been at a couple different bars um, around Indian River on a way earlier that day. Um, he had some other altercations that, that happened with his wife's family members. Ultimately, the blood on Magali's shirt could only be traced to him. Magali said it was from a domestic incident, and police didn't have enough to charge him. Then, in 1997, police thought they'd caught a break. A few years later, um, there was a subject who was John Magali's bunkie, um, that person came forward with some information uh, that he, he alleges that John Magali had disclosed to him in prison that he had stopped at the rest area um, attempting to find a car and he was going to rob Jane Snow. Uh, he didn't know who she was, obviously. Um, while he uh, was attempting to rob her, she resisted, so he stabbed her multiple times. Uh, according to him, he freaked out and ran from the rest area and did not steal any money or, or the keys to the vehicle. He did know when he was running away that there were two boys um, at the vehicle or in the vehicle, and as he's running and crossing the freeway, one of the boys was heading towards the bathroom. Alas, this tip wouldn't pan out for police either. The bunkie cut his tether and fled the state, leaving all credibility behind. A few years later, he died. Hart said he's interviewed McGauley several times over the years, that last time in a prison in about 2015. McGauley was uncooperative, Hart said, but has denied involvement with Snow's death. There have been numerous other people 
um, tips that have been generated. Um, people have been investigated, but most of those have been disproven through physical evidence or there just wasn't enough there. Um, unlike Mr. Magali, he, he was actually there trying to go back and, you know, getting a tip 20 years later and trying to run it through and find out where people were. This is all prior to computers. So you're relying on businesses and people to have paper records and documentation on where they had been at that time. Um, but John Magali is, is the only person that we haven't been able to clear. Um, we had another person that developed um, um, that has also died. Um, there was a lot of effort put in because we had some tips that appeared to be provided maliciously from a family member, um, although we weren't able to clear that person. Um, we had problems with the person providing the information as, as being factual. Magali spent much of his life in and out of prison, serving time for escaping incarceration, receiving stolen property, operating under the influence, and most recently, several counts of retail fraud. He was paroled from prison in January 2017. He died in September that same year. Hart says it was a suspected overdose. In wake of his death, Police and family are curious if anyone knowledgeable in the death of Jane Snow might now be willing to come forward. In the meantime, Hart says he's relying on the preservation of evidence so future laboratory testing might stand a chance at solving the murder of Jane Snow. Mary Baraboo, Jane Snow's sister, said you can't measure the impact her sister's death had on her family. The post-traumatic stress it caused and the way it shaped their lives... Of Magali, she said she would feel awful if after all this time she learned he wasn't the man who killed her sister. She said, I think although there is a chance we could be wrong, I think we really believe John Magali was the person that killed my sister. The evidence has always been circumstantial. There was always some hope that before he died that he would confess to doing it. That never happened. A few days after speaking with me, Baraboo sent me a long email recounting the events of 1979 the horror of Jane Snow's sons watching her last breath, and the fear it instilled in the young children. It's an indelible image left in their memory, she said, but Jane's death terrorized them all. She talked about Jane, Janie to her, tiny at roughly five foot tall and hundred pounds, but huge in spirit and love. She ended the email with a plea. She said, quote, please, 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 anyone who may know anything about that horrific night, May 15th, 1979, I beg you to contact the Gaylord State Police Post. What happened to my sister can never be undone. What happened to her boys can never be undone. But you may be our last hope in helping to end this ongoing nightmare, in helping to bring closure to Janie's death and the questions that still exist. Those with information on Jane Snow's death can call police at 989-732-2778. That's 989- 732-2778. Hey there, this is uh, John Counts with Michigan Crime Stories. I'm sitting here with Darcy Moran, who just delivered us a very haunting story about the murder of Jane Snow. So anybody who's driven through Michigan has stopped at a rest stop, and, and you know, this is kind of uh, 
one of the most horrifying nightmares that you can possibly imagine of stopping at a rest area. So did this incident prompt um, officials in Michigan to take any precautions at rest areas? So it's an interesting thing. I actually called um, the Michigan Department of Transportation to speak with a spokesman about this. And he said they couldn't find um, that there were changes made to rest stop safety um, directly related to this. However, uh, some news reporting on the 10-year anniversary showed that some changes were made, additional lighting. I know right after um, there were reports that, you know, they were trying to get police there more often, just checking the rest stop areas. But then, yeah, 10 years later, they were talking about... uh, lighting and new um, emergency alarms, but those may have been taken down for vandalism. Um, So it's not totally clear, but generally speaking, um, it's believed, um, just kind of anecdotally, to have done so. Um, But yeah, it is, you know, a shocking thing. And talking to Mary Baraboo, she was saying that she stops at that uh, same rest stop every time um, she goes by in memory of her sister. And she's glad to see that the door remains open now. She worries that her sister maybe couldn't have escaped because there was no way out of that bathroom. Um, and she said she'd like to think that that change is because of what happened. So it sounds like you spoke extensively with the family. What has been, and it sounds like they're, they're pretty um, um, haunted by this, this incident, what happened to Jane Snow's uh, children? So I did reach out to the children um, to see if they would want to comment Uh, One of them, through his aunt Mary, uh, asked me to send some emailed questions, and I didn't hear back. Um, I didn't hear back from the other son as well. Um, I do know that, you know, they they both grew grew up with this haunting their lives, had a huge impact, as Mary said, um, post-traumatic stress disorder for everyone in the family. She talked about how she would sleep with a knife under her bed for some time, um, but out of respect for the sons and them not willing to comment on their own, she, she kind of wanted to limit um, how they were involved in this story, though they did want it told. So it sounds like the lack of conclusion in this story has uh, frustrated police and the family, to say the least. What else can detectives do at this point? I mean, it sounds like their main suspect is dead and they're, they're still looking for tips. I mean, you've covered um, murders and, and police situations for, for a while now. What What kind of challenges do detectives face in this case? Well, a huge thing is just time. It's been 40 years. Many of the people involved, as as you may have noted, are dead. And so going back through old alibis and all of that information um, becomes very difficult. They have to rely on hard documentation to show where people were. And one thing Hart noted is, you know, he's actually retiring soon and he's starting to prep another detective to take over. It's generations and generations of detectives that have been working on this and not giving up. That's something he noted that it's going to take people continuing to do that and not setting it aside for all of the day-to-day crime that occurs and police issues that go on. Um, It's going to take someone taking the time to solve this for the family. He's hoping new sciences can be developed that can work on DNA and and looking at this issue. Um, But right now it is kind of at a standstill. Well, hopefully someday the family can find some closure. This has been John Counts with Michigan Crime Stories. And I'm Darcy Moran. Thanks to Detective Sergeant Dave Hart and Mary Baraboo for taking the time to speak with us. And thanks to you for listening. Michigan Crime Stories is about telling the hidden, unknown, important, or odd stories in the state of Michigan. 
If you know a story that might fit the ticket or something you'd like to know more about, you can email me at dmoran at mlive.com. That's d-m-o-r-a-n at mlive.com. I'm Darcy Moran, and this is Michigan Crime Stories. 